We return to bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis with our special guest, Dave Lindorf. We are discussing Occupy movement. Uh, We are discussing wealth inequality from the recent Oxfam Time to Care report of January 2020, in which the extraordinary details of the rate of exploitation of women throughout the world is exposed and gives further credence to the primacy and the basis in which Occupy Wall Street initiated the focus on wealth inequality some 10 years earlier. So that's where so much of the wealth comes from, namely the unpaid and underpaid value created by women and young girls throughout the world. And it's being appropriated by such a small percentage. But the World Bank, and this is what I wanted you to speak to, their research in 2019, it has shown that we were routinely misled about the nature of these economics and that reducing inequality, they argued, has a bigger effect on reducing extreme poverty than an increase in economic growth. So we're always focused on did the GDP increase or not, and that's really not even important. It's the reduction in the inequality that's important. And it showed that if countries reduced income inequality by 1% each year, 100 million fewer people would be living in extreme poverty by 2030. And then the study found that reducing inequality by 1% each year had a larger impact than increasing growth by 1%. Above forecasts. Sure. So that, that was one thing I wanted to ask you to speak to before we do turn to the issue of Occupy on its 10th anniversary. Can you speak to those types of smoke and mirror arguments that are made by neoliberals with respect to the economy like that? Absolutely. The focus on growth is is bogus on numerous accounts. First of all, you can't have endless growth, right? In, in growth in a finite planet with finite resources cannot continue at the kinds of rates that capitalism demands. The capitalist system is based on the idea that people invest in shares of a company, and then as the company grows, their share value grows, and this is how the theory works. And so that's, that's why our corporations work this way. You have managers who get paid bonuses for keeping the earnings growth going up at, you know, they like to have 12, 15% annual growth. Well, just figure it out. I mean, you can't, if you had continuous 15% growth, um, you'd very quickly uh, like be talking about trillion dollar companies all over the place. It doesn't happen. It cannot happen. And it's, it's a giant Ponzi scheme. So, and the second thing is that uh, treating growth as though it has any impact on the lives of ordinary people is simply a lie, because what we've done is we've stripped away the connection between productivity by workers and their compensation. It used to be, you know, if you went back to uh, the 50s, say, or maybe into the 60s, that there was some correlation between how a company would grow and how it would become more productive per worker through automation and things and what the workers would get. But wages have not gone up uh, in the last 30 years. 
We haven't even changed the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just don't change it. Everybody still makes seven twenty-five an hour, uh, and uh, at the bottom. And you can't live on that. Multiply it out times 40 and see what you come up with. You can't live on it. So we subsidize the low employment payments for our workforce by having taxes pay for things like food stamps and rent subsidies and things like that. You know, like places like Walmart, when you get hired, they uh, send you to a office that helps you apply for food stamps and for, you know, if you qualify for welfare, they, you know, you haven't used up your five years, they'll help you apply for that too. While you're working for them, wow. they, they have people, uh, paid supervisory staff who help you get public benefits to work for them. It's insane. And that's, that's what happens when you say growth is a measure of a economy's good performance and of a society's well-being. And it also distracts you from the real problem, which is the wealth inequality, right? Yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be that way. And the wealth inequality has, has soared in the U.S. We're the most unequal country in the OECD. Right, 35 and that's, nations. And that's insane. We're the richest country in the world on a per capita basis if you take our GDP and divide it up by our population. But we are not the richest country. We're the country with the most amount of poverty among OECD countries, uh, and with the most child poverty, both uh, of which are uh, an abomination. Yeah, I totally, I totally concur. It's a great point. Also, I just wanted to one one more comment from this Time to Care piece by the Oxfam. They say there's also evidence that the dominant neoliberal economic policy menu, including tax cuts for the rich, privatization and cuts to public services hurts women and girls more than men. So there's also that going on. But I wanted to piggyback on what you said, because from 2009, and this is from how billionaires got $637 billion richer during the pandemic. This is from July 28, 2020 in the Business Insider. And they are saying Mm -hmm. essentially what you just said. From 2009, To 2012, the incomes of the bottom 99% grew by only 0.4%, while the top 1% incomes grew by 31.4% during the same time span. And it all ties back to two things. The government just bailing out proportionately gave more money to banks and corporations than bailing out uh, Main Street, so to speak. But can you speak a little bit because I want to turn to a piece that you wrote, a couple of pieces that you wrote. I think it's really important because Occupy Wall Street, it was a protest movement against income or economic inequality, not not income inequality, but actually wealthy inequality. And it was initi- which is even worse. Which is even worse and more important. It was it was initiated some ten years ago on September seventeenth, that was a date to twenty eleven, but it began in Zakoti Park in New York City's Wall Street Financial District. The park was privately held park owned by this property company, the Brookfield Office Properties, and named after its former chairman. First, there were some 7,000 people arrested. It lasted, what, some 60, 70 days or so. Can you take us back and highlight a little bit about that movement and how it went throughout the whole country, and I think parts of the world as well. And then subsequently, you came across documentation that showed how it got busted up 
and surprisingly by people that claim that they were fighting for the interests of the 99% like the Obama administration. Can you give us that backstory on that? Yeah, well, you know, the Occupy movement sprang up pretty organically. One of my colleagues, Chuck Young, who sadly died of brain cancer a few years back, covered it from the beginning and was really taken by it. And it was very focused, as you say, on this issue of income inequality. And it scared the crap out of the financiers on Wall Street because they had to walk past it, you know, from coming to work. And here were these people, you know, sort of ratty, hippie types, you know, protesting and telling the truth that, that, you know, the country's divided into 99% and 1%, and the Wall Street people were the 1%. And so the leaders of uh, Wall Street actually got in touch with their guy, who was Mayor Bloomberg, one of the top richest people in the country, and they said, look, we need protection. We're going to fund the cops on their overtime. And so they had all these New York cops down there uh, just massively all the time during this demonstration. There were cops everywhere. It was like a, it was like an occupied zone with cops who were most of the time be, just standing around, but every once in a while being horribly brutal, running motorcycles over people and beating them up and spraying mace in their faces and stuff. Totally peaceful. This was an organization that from no organization. It was a movement that everywhere it appeared around the country was avowedly and and, you know, I'd, I'd use the word militantly pacifist. They They didn't they were everyone that was there was trained in nonviolence and deconfliction techniques, and there, there there just was no violence. But uh, there was a lot of violence by cops everywhere. You know, Oakland in particular, Seattle, Portland, New York. And what came out later was that the Obama administration and Homeland Security Department coordinated. The and promoted the violence. And the way they did it was they set up a command center, a national operations center, at one of the 90, I think back then it was 72 fusion centers around the country. And these were set up, I think, during the Bush-Cheney administration initially. And it was a very clever uh, idea. They claimed it was to make sure that all the various and intelligence agencies were coordinated so that they didn't miss something when there was an errors plot, right? Remember connecting the dots they all talked about, right. how we didn't connect the dots to catch the 9-11 people? Well, what, they turned that around, and what they did is they made these centers, which included every possible federal, state, and local intelligence units in one building in each of these cities, 72 cities. Now it's so I think. And because it didn't have any jurisdiction, it wasn't a federal agency, it wasn't a state agency, it wasn't a local agency, there's no transparency at all. There's no way you can file a FOIA on a fusion center because it's just a, a building where a lot of different personnel from different agencies work. Right? Just, just real quick, Freedom and, of Information it, Act is a FOIA, right? That's what you're referring to? Yeah, and, and yeah. they also they also included 
at security companies that were working for large corporations, and they were out in force in these Occupy movement places, especially on Wall Street. And so they were contributing. This is a, I mean, I think I wrote somewhere, this is a classic definition of fascism when you bring the Northern Command of the U.S. military, all the various federal spy agencies, all the state agencies like state police, or they all, every diddly squat police agency has an intelligence operation. You bring all them together with private corporate security people. That's fascism by definition. It's when you get government and military and corporations together to run things. And then they used that National Operations Center to encourage the different cities, the mayors and police chiefs, to share information with each other about what techniques were working best to squash the uh, Occupy movement. So, so say the mayor of Oakland would call the rest of the mayors and, you know, maybe sit down with their police chief and tell them how they used nighttime raids and maximum violence to intimidate the protesters and drive them out of the encampment in Oakland, which they did. I mean, they used beanbag guns. They used uh, rubber bullets. Uh, There were some severe injuries. They trampled tents that had babies in them. Uh, they, They committed, like, mayhem and violence. It's amazing people weren't killed. And they sent that out and said, like, we did nighttime raids. We kept the press out of the area so there wasn't good reporting on what happened. And, you know, that scared people off. And then, you know, you started seeing the same thing being done in Portland and the same thing being done in New York. And each time it was done somewhere, that was communicated to the other cities so that they would know this is the way to go. It was a horrendous thing. It was very strategic in the way that they kept the press from seeing what was going on. I remember that part very well. That's been yeah, that absolutely documented. And, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, my friend Chuck went down there to be there when he heard he got a call because uh, he knew the people down there, and they said he got to come down. They're they're trying to drive us out, and he raced down on the subway, and he couldn't get there. The cops had it all blocked off. He showed you know his uh, letter that he was a uh, you know an employee of the press, and they didn't care. It just kept them away. And then, you know, the other thing is that's really significant is that the Trump administration, when they had that brutal attack at Lafayette Park... And that's um, what I wanted to ask you about, because you wrote a piece called Tear Gas and Clubs in Lafayette Square were just the beginning, a 2020 piece, but you actually indicate that President Trump and Attorney General Barr turned to the Occupy model to crush the protest. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there was a phone call that after that incident, you know, and that uh, brutal crackdown in Washington on a totally peaceful protest out in the streets uh, in front of Lafayette Park, where they also used rubber bullets and stuff and beat reporters up and broke cameras and all kinds of stuff. They called a group call to all 50 governors and Barr and Trump praised the tactics used by the Obama administration in crushing the Occupy movement. And Trump was effusive in in saying how, you know, one, one day there was an Occupy movement and the next day it was gone. You know, it was handled properly with, you know, using violence against them. And then Barr said, we're going to apply the uh, Occupy movement to the Black Lives Matter movement. 
And he just called it the model, the Occupy model on the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And that's what they did. That's what they did, only it wasn't quite as successful because I think that when you're attacking a bunch of middle-class kids and young people like they were doing mostly white kids in the Occupy movement, it's what has one effect, and they're not used to that. But when you attack people in the black community who live with police repression every day of their lives, they're not as intimidated by it. Well, I think another factor is the way the press covered it, right? I mean, when you have a Democratic president, it seems way too often it's like kid gloves when it comes to coverage of issues like this. I, I don't remember the type of coverage that you're suggesting. Not only did, did they keep the press away, but none of these people that had stories, those stories were not aired on the mainstream press in 2011. They just didn't seem to have the same access. So I, I know it's, it's, it's weird. It's like sometimes when you have a progressive president and there's all of this repression, there's not nearly the type of scrutiny than if it's a Republican president. Oh, yeah. Look, I'm, I'm 72 years old. I, I was an anti-war activist and draft resistor in 67, 68. I learned early at uh, 18 when I was arrested and jailed at the uh, 1967 March on the Pentagon, beaten up on the Pentagon Mall and, you know, hauled off to jail with hundreds of other people. That what the truth was, because the, the press didn't report on it. You know, they said that there were no injuries, or I think they said one guy was injured and one guy was tear gassed or something. And I'm in jail with hundreds of guys, and there were people who'd had their elbows broken by having their arms twisted. There were people with head injuries in my cell with, you know, one, uh, one, 100 of us in one cell. I saw plenty of people who were really brutally injured by the cops. And I had bruises from the batons that hit me when I was being carried to the paddy wagon. So I knew that the press lied from the time I was 18. And and there just was no coverage of it because it was a Democratic president. And then this thing kind of continues. You see that, you know, when, when Nixon was president, there was a lot of reporting about the horrors of the Vietnam War. And there was sympathetic reporting about protests that developed against the war. Even the uh, uprising among the American GIs was reported on somewhat. But then, you know, you moved away from Nixon and you've got Jimmy Carter, who he wasn't treated well in some ways for his domestic policies, but on foreign policy, they whitewashed his supporting of the crackdown in South Korea, brutal, m murderous crackdown by the dictatorship in South Korea on the student uprising there, which was, you know, much more dramatic than the Tiananmen student demonstrations. Mm -hmm. Students actually took over cities and had the support of the masses of the population of the city. And the military came in and slaughtered them. And that, that was given the okay by Carter. We know that now, but it wasn't reported at the time because he was Democratic president. And you can see this down the line. You know, Obama got really got a pass. I mean, he was like, he was like the golden boy in the media. And he, he didn't do bad stuff, but he really did. In fact, they almost lied us right into a Syrian war, him and John Kerry, which was 
preceded by the June 28, 2009 coup in Honduras that we enabled, which resulted in terrible outcomes for the majority population of Honduras, as well as the 2011 invasion and overthrow of the Libyan government, an illegal overthrow of a government that had the highest human development index throughout the African continent and essentially was advocating and doing more for the majority populations of the whole African continent than any country in history. This was the profile of the country that the Obama administration overthrew, in which the country was instantly transformed into a return of slavery and a hotbed of jihadist activity. And don't forget, you know, yeah. Obama has, has, uh, was the one that launched us on a 10-year, $1.3 trillion nuclear modernization. Mr. Nobel Peace Laureate has started us on the road of designing what they call usable nuclear weapons because they're dialable and you can explode them at 10 kilotons or uh, five kil. I think as small as five kilotons or up to 300 kilotons. And so if you do small ones, supposedly, then it won't turn into a all-out nuclear war. But mm-hmm. that's ludicrous. And once you start using nuclear weapons in a conflict, you're going to find the weapons getting dialed up bigger and bigger really fast. Well, I don't want to sound anti-Obama, but, you know, we just say it like it is, but you had incredible wealth disparity increases under Obama that were never rivaled by any any other president until Trump came along. Uh, Yeah. But him and Trump, I mean, they both just promoted this very thing that we're so concerned about. But listen, We're just about out of time. If people want to access some of your articles, Dave, what's a good way in order to access your work? Everything that I write is either in print in full on the website, thiscan'tbehappening.net, or if it was done for some other publication like The Nation, sometimes it'll be a link on my site to the work I did in other publications. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, a starting point to get anything you want. The headline will be there and the start of the story, and then you can jump to the other ones. That would be where people could go. And there is a, there's a Google search bar, so if you do the topic, you can usually find it. Mm-hmm. There's also, we have boxes for each of the writers in the collective on the right column which if you scroll down, you'll find mine, and you can go through by date and find pieces. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for making the time to be with us tonight and a very provocative presentation you made on the show tonight. I just want to remind folks that we've had the great pleasure of visiting with Dave Lindorf. He's a veteran award-winning investigative reporter, and this can'tbehappening.net is the journalism site that he founded. Thank you so much, Dave, for your time tonight. Well, thank you for having me on. Look forward to learning together into the future. See you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity.
Yeah. 